Welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm Dave Cohen. I'm James Carey. And this is Katie. Hello. Katie Story, our producer. Uh, This is episode 11, and in today's episode we're going to talk about writer-performers and the writer-performer sitcom. Just before we do that, uh, here's an email from Rufus and Howard of the Man by Cow podcast, which is also at the British Comedy Guide, which of course is where you find us. Um, And this is a podcast, It's uh, they wanted us to tell you about a sitcom come sketch show. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Peppered with music and chat. So it's not a sitcom at all then? Well, it's not. <laughs> or a sketch. What's a, you know, it's not a dramedy. What would you call a, a, a sketchcom? Yeah, I've heard no, that phrase used. Yeah, actually. yeah. No, no it can work. Com. It can work. Yeah. I'm being, I'm being yeah. unnecessarily right. obtuse. I think The Young Ones was a sketchcom really, wasn't it? Uh... To well, some extent. I suppose yeah. so. Maybe. Discuss, and it had music in it too. It had a, yeah. it had live music. It had music yeah. in it as well. Yeah. And apparently, the reason for that was they uh, they weren't uh, they couldn't get uh, funding from the comedy department. They had to go to the uh, entertainment department because uh, Paul Jackson, of course, had come from Seaside Special. So um, that's why they uh, they had a band in every episode, and so it, their their budget was the variety budget. So there you go. Wow, I did not know that. A little bit of information, the yeah. inside info for you. So yes, we mentioned wooden overcoats last time, so we've obviously opened the floodgates uh, for uh, crazed podcast makers uh, demanding a mention. So there you go. Um, I've got uh, one little bit of podcast news. I was on yep. an edition of oh, UK yes. Scriptwriters podcast. Danny Stack. Danny Stack and Tim Clegg, and had a great time with them. So um, I, I plugged this podcast on that podcast, and so I feel I should plug that podcast on this podcast. They always do a really good show, and I am looking forward to listening to that. I haven't heard it yet. Sorry, James. No, not at all. And it's a uh, it's a good uh, it, it is a really good practical uh, sitcom writing um, uh, episode, hopefully. But overall, they look at all aspects of writing. They've done about fifty episodes, and I think they're really well worth listening to. Mm. And um, so that's UK scriptwriters. Uh, go and have a listen to that. And they've just made a movie as well, a children's movie, movie called uh, Who Killed Nelson Nutmeg. Yeah. What we're going to do, uh, as I've said, we're going to talk about the writer performer, uh, how writing and how the writer performer has changed uh, sitcoms really, and uh, what it means for us, for you starting out. But again, just before we do that, uh, sorry, this is another pre-preview. But um, we're going to be uh, talking about uh, our scripts because. Um, if you remember, we did a, uh, a podcast a few weeks ago about the first 10 pages. So what we're doing is we're opening up and offering you the chance to send us your first 10 pages. Okay, so have a listen to that uh, particular uh, podcast before you send them. And uh, we promise constructive criticism. And just to show that we are taking this seriously, and James and I have offered up our own attempts um, from scripts that we were convinced at the time were destined for BAFTA success, but which now lay sad and neglected, like the outline pages for series three of Derek. Oh, ouch. So, ooh. So, so we have, if you're a podcast listener generally, we have blatantly nicked this from the Script Notes podcast where they do the three page challenge. Uh, this is a, uh, but this is more suitable for us. This is the ten, first 10 pages of your sitcom. So uh, do send us the, your first 10 pages. Uh, to our uh, email address, which is sitcomgeeks at gmail dot com. So sitcomgeeks at gmail dot com, and we'll if you send us hundreds, we won't be able to do them all, but we will do our best to maybe get through one a week or one every other week and talk constructively, hopefully, uh, you, about it. If you do send us hundreds, that must mean that we're reaching thousands of people. So which would be very exciting. Yes. It would. So uh, the 
facing the music though this week for the first one is going to be Dave who has sent me the first 10 pages of a sitcom called Not the End of the World which he wrote in what year? In 2010. Okay, so this is a, a 2010 vintage mm-hmm. and it's called as I say Not the End of the World episode 3 The Great Outdoors um, and this is the first 10 pages that I've read. Is there I've got some uh, just a couple of uh, notes here but is there anything I need to know about this before I launch in? Well, I thought I'd give you it unseen and just let you uh, decide, really. But it's um, it, 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 it's about the, 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 the fifth version of this show. It's an idea that um, I'd had around about 2006, um, which uh, I'd written up in various forms, and it kind of ended up as this, and this was positively my last attempt uh, to do anything with it for reasons so, which will become clear. <laughs> well, what's um, let me describe it for the listeners. And what what we're planning to do is hopefully you should be able to get a PDF of these first ten pages if you go to our uh, Facebook uh, pa- Facebook page, Sitcom Geeks. If you look for us on Facebook, then there'll be a link there to uh, a, a website with this on. It might just be my blog or Dave's blog or something, but we'll have them up. So go to it, find us on Facebook. And like us on Facebook, and then you'll be able to get access to the PDF and read it for yourself and make up your own mind about what you think about it. But um, let me just describe what happens in the first um, ten pages. It's mostly one uh, one scene, and there's the beginning of a second scene. But in the first scene, you've got... Um, uh, on the very first page, it says, All the action takes place in the self-contained biosphere. So this is clearly some kind of uh, post... Uh, Post slightly apocalyptic, environmental apocalyptic world, and uh, scene one is in the main hangout room, and the characters are, are Jenna and Bear are talking, and then Aubrey joins the conversation, and then a guy called Johnny comes in and announces it's his birthday, and he needs help with the cake, and then he goes out with Aubrey, and then that's sort of the end of the scene. I'm just talking about what actually happens rather than what they talk about. And then the beginning of it, there's a second scene with, uh, that starts with two new characters uh, called Rose and Andre. And so let me just uh, launch in. And so read the, if you can read it for yourself. But so what, what's great about this is from the very outset, you get the sense that this is uh, an ambitious show with a completely new, new world, as it were. It's got a new, it's, it's clear what's going on in terms of where we are. We've got some kind of futuristic um, building and uh, it says at the top here, uh, the building is a modern construction, tastefully furnished, offering wide windowed view of the outdoors and outdoors. Uh, the trees are tall but dead, no leaves, no sign of life at all. The view is stunning but bleak. I mean, as are the prospects of most sitcom writers. Yes. The view is stunning, but bleak. <laughs> um, stunning. So, what's so? So, my gut reactions to reading this, without overanalyzing it too much, is one is so we've got a strong setting, which is a and I, I think what excites me about sitcoms is when immediately there's a a new world being created, whether it's one that we are familiar with or one that we don't know. And I, I sometimes get frustrated that lots of sitcoms lack ambition. But what I like about the show is it's it's got some ambition to it. Um, the downside is uh, with pitching sitcoms that are science fiction, this is just an industry thing, is some people are convinced that some people don't like sci-fi. And selling a science fiction idea is for some reason historically very difficult. Yeah. Even Funnily though, enough, the word science fiction or... Words, yeah. science fiction, never entered my mind 
It, but it reads, um, it reads like science fiction. Yeah. Um, because it has a kind of a, a slightly futuristic element yeah, to it. Okay. Where the rules, the rules of engagement are completely different in terms of people don't get into cars and drive around and go to the cafe and go to the cinema and mm-hmm. this is not that kind of world. Yeah. So, so that's an upside and a downside. It's a, it's a exciting world, but the downside is sometimes it's worth knowing that people are resistant to sitcoms about science fiction because people think that comedy audiences don't like science fiction, which I have to say, I think is probably nonsense, isn't it? Given the success of... Red Dwarf. Yeah. Doctor Who, Red Dwarf and all that stuff. Hitchhikers. Yeah. Yeah. It seems that your comedy audience and your sci-fi audience have a really big overlap. And Mm. I I, I don't... Yeah. (laughs) And also, I I don't really know... If there are people who hate sci-fi so much that they will not watch a sitcom in order to get away from it, and although I'm not a sci-fi fan myself, what I what, what you always hear um, the the most successful writers of sci-fi saying is um, it's that that's kind of secondary anyway. What's yes. important is the story yeah. and the characters, yeah. and that's really uh, that, that that's true of anything. But you may be right, but. Um, the reason, or reasons, one of the reasons that I, I didn't pursue this was because, um, in fact, we're in the, the offices of a positive, uh, positive TV and radio, and positive have a sitcom that's currently playing out on Radio Four, uh, which is kind of covers exactly this area. So sci-fi. It's called my radio. first, my first, my first planet. planet. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, they're, they're, it feels like a bit of an overlap there, which is unfortunate, but yeah. but the actual what you've written here. Um, so what's great also is you've got um, two characters called Jenna and Bear and then Aubrey and then Johnny and what's clear is about who they are and what their attitudes are so that's great Um, here is my kind of main critique I think is that the conversation's great lots of jokes but nothing actually happens and so we get to pay we get to the end of the scene and somebody's come in, said it's their birthday, needs a hand with a cake, and somebody goes out. And so there's lots of uh, talking and jokes and attitude. But I think, especially given that we're in quite a strange and different world, I know this is episode three as well, so it's not it's not necessarily a setup episode. But it felt to me like whatever's going to happen, um, which I don't know, uh, could happen sooner. Um, well, it does happen in the end of the scene. There's a suddenly, there's a, uh, they, they think they've seen some uh, some movement outside. Yes, that, that is like the main. That's the main sort of. So part there's of the plot. yeah. So there's some there's some stuff that's happening outside, and then one of them says he's going to go out and have a look, and wants the other and wants Jen to go with him, and then she, um, she says, "Oh, well, you can go go then," and and then she goes out. She leaves, and so I felt like the. the that felt like it was slightly thrown away and I, I wondered if you could make more of that particular moment. I'm sure we'll come yeah. back to it later, but... Mm. Interestingly, James and I were teaching uh, sitcom writing last week and uh, one of the points uh, that um, James made was when, you've got your, when you're telling your story, get to the story as quickly as possible. And uh, I looked at the notes, I looked at this and thought, ah, I'm about four pages too late getting to the story. <laughs> okay, great. I knew, I knew you'd pick me up yeah. on that. A couple of things I should also mention. Yeah. It's actually, the idea was that it was a it, it was a, a TV a reality show. Okay. put a bunch of people together in an, in this self-contained world with enough food to survive and enough things to survive for, for, for months mm. or years or whatever. And that... Uh, 
whilst they were in there, the apocalypse happened. Okay. Um, and then, as another explanation as well, they had this other character who appears in episode one, Rose, who wasn't actually... Uh, she she was living separately in the biosphere, and she was they were going to discover her at some point. Right. That was for a bit of jeopardy to yep. brought in by the uh, makers of the... Uh, yeah. And so because you've um, you've written an episode three here, I guess there isn't any... Um, that what you've just said is not clear from what's here, yeah. which is fine. But it, it, what was an interesting... I was slightly on the horns of a dilemma with this because we have said in previous podcasts that backstory is a disaster. Mm. And if you, if you load your first... Um, uh, your first five, ten pages of the backstory, um, then it feels like the plot's not going forward. Um, so with this, there were hints of what this situation was, but I couldn't quite, yeah. couldn't quite work it out. Right. And therefore, I, I, that was slightly for me getting in the way of the comedy. You can either fix that with an opening title sequence, which explains the premise, mm-hmm. um, which I think you would probably do. And that just, that just isn't here. Yeah. So in one sense, it's worth, for me, what was interesting was thinking, I'd actually like a bit more backstory here, or at least some explanation of exactly what the rules oh, are, because uh-huh. it because it's not that's not quite clear. Um, but again, I mean, sometimes you can explain this in an, in an opening uh, document. Uh, if you submit a sitcom script, you can write a page of of an outline to explain what the situation is, which works fine. But my my rule for reading scripts is I I only read the script, Me and too. if it's not in the script. Then I can't do it. But anyway, this is an episode three as well, so that's just. I kind of put episode three on it to make uh, whoever reads it think, ah, this isn't just any old pilot episode. This is, you know, this this shows he knows what he's doing, this guy, right? He's not just (laughs) putting in the pilot. Yeah. Um, And that's that's basically it. I've got one last thing here where very early on you're very specific about. Uh, the famous shot from the Misfits, i.e., ear to ear and facing in opposite directions, um, and I've n- is that a movie, The Misfits? Yeah, it's yeah, too mu- it's too much. It's a very specific reference, but also it's a director's. Yeah, and so it's a, so in one sense, I think you're directing here, and I, I don't know what that gives you in terms of comedy, no. but I don't know whether that's yeah whether that's the thing. But you know, it was a, it was it was funny. I enjoyed it, and I would happily have read more because yeah. I wanted to know what was going to happen next. And in one sense. Your first ten pages need to get you get the whoever's reading it to read the next twenty pages. Right. So in that sense, it's a tick in the box and it's a job done. Okay. But um, uh, but yeah. So that's what I thought. But you can make okay. up your own mind if you read the first ten pages. Obviously, unfortunately, if you send in your first ten pages, you won't have a right to reply like uh, Dave does now. Um, uh, it's interesting but, as well, one thing worth mentioning, that I, when I first started writing the idea, I had the, I've had the characters for a long time. They, they, um, they're, they're basically, there's a, a, a female character who is a sort of Jeremy Clarkson yes. type, and then this kind of hippy-dippy guy. Um, and they were, they were originally neighbours, and this was in sort of 2006. Um, and... I was writing this with my co-writer at the time, Paul McKenzie, and we were told, oh, actually, uh, Richard Curtis is writing a green sitcom at this point. Um, at which point we thought, well, forget it then. Yeah, that's <laughs> the end of that. But then, of course, Richard Curtis didn't write a green sitcom. He may have been thinking about writing a green sitcom, um, but he ended up not doing it. So that's another uh, lesson hmm. is don't give up too yeah. soon. You never know what's going to... No, yeah, which I didn't, and then it became something different. There has not yet to date been any 
um, great green sitcom, has there? We're going to move on now and talk about the rise of the writer-performer in all areas of comedy, really, but uh, specifically uh, sitcom, and how does it affect you at starting out now? I've um, I've been interviewing quite a lot of people for the National Film Television School uh, course, and uh, it's amazing, and I've been doing this for two or three years now, and occasionally people say, I've done a bit of stand-up, uh, a bit of improv, but this year, just about every single applicant said, I've done improv, and uh, it's amazing how few people are applying for this course who actually have just done comedy. Um, there's a show in the West End at the moment called Showstoppers. Uh, it's called Improv Musical, and it's uh, on in the West End now. It's a brilliant show. I haven't seen it, but I know people doing it. I know uh, of it and uh, how it works, and it is a brilliant idea. Um, only show on in the West End, not actually paying any writers. <laughs> Apart from, of course, the Comedy Store Players. Two shows a week, 30 years old, still going strong. I went to the uh, 30th anniversary of that, and uh, I was involved in the... Uh, comedy store players setting it up back in 1985 so if improv makes you sick to the to the depths of your bones or whatever apologies it's partly my fault that you see so much of it so first thing really we should be saying to you should you be doing improv stroke stand-up uh to help your sitcom writing career what do you think james oh blimey that's putting me on the spot i mean from my own point of view I I have done a bit of stand-up a, little, uh, a fair while ago and a bit of performing. I used to do it at university and I was never that interested in doing it, but I did it because I could and I felt I sort of should. And then when we did, I did a sketch show in 1999 uh, called Infinite Number of Monkeys at the Edinburgh Fringe and I was in I was in a bit of that. I wrote quite a lot of it. And I was only really in the bits that I couldn't get down to two people because there were two other people in the show. And whenever a third voice was needed, I, I would do it. So I was always a slightly reluctant performer, even though I, I'm not a particularly nervous performer or anything like that. I just, the more comedians and comedy people and performers I've got to know, the more I realise how good they are at it. And that for me to try and do it is a bit of a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, from my own point of view, it's hard to advise people, really. I think if there are opportunities to do stuff and you can do it, then uh, then you probably should. But at the same time, you don't have to feel like this is your trajectory for the rest of your life. Um, lots of people, I mean, all, tons of stuff. I mean, hardly hardly any writers that I can think of or know um, haven't done some performing at some point. Mm. Um, even if, I mean, when we spoke to Andy Riley and Kevin Cecil, I think Kevin wanted to be in a band and I think they were both kind of interested in other types of performing. So I think if, you know, I, th- I think there are lots of options out there. Um, One thing I've noticed recently as well, uh, cause I've been judging a sketch show for competition to win your chance to do your sketch show at the Gilded Balloon. And they have this uh, sketch competition every year. So I've, I've seen a lot of new sketch acts and been involved with a couple as well. And, James and I, we've come very much from the traditional school of sketch writing. We write sketches. They go into shows, usually on the radio, occasionally if we're lucky on telly. The actors read them, might come up with the odd suggestion. Mm. Basically, the sketch uh, goes out pretty much as is written by the writer. 
Now, what's happening, I've found, is a lot of people are improvising sketches. That's how they get to their sketches. And for me, it doesn't always work. But then sketches don't always work anyway, do they? No. It's such a difficult... uh, Well, what's great about what improv teaches you, and we should turn to Katie briefly here, who's had a little bit of experience in this, is that it, it teaches you just to try stuff. And it teaches you to get over the fear of failure. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. So I um, so I did an improv course uh, just over a year ago, and this was so out of character for me. And we did this stupid warm-up game where you had to do a tongue twister, and everyone got it wrong. Like, within five minutes, everyone got it wrong. And Paul Foxcroft, who was teaching, kind of went, great, what happened to that? Everyone effed up. Mm. What happened? Nothing. Yeah. And that, for me, is like the opposite of how I live my life. So yeah. No, there must be consequences <laughs> for failure. Yeah. But it was really good space just to do that. Um, and also, I would often be in a scene and you'd come up with a really good idea for a sketch and something that you thought, oh, we'll take that away. That was a raw thing, but we wouldn't have happened on that yeah. any other way. So, I mean, yeah. in a sense, it's... It really creates... It just gets you going. It just gets you going. Because, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've talked about a lot on this podcast and in the book and on the blog, is trying to find the right plot for your sitcom the best thing to do is just think of 80 plots mm-hmm. and one of them will be really good and much more suitable than others. And improv just teaches you that discipline of just think of new stuff, think of new stuff, think of new stuff. Occasionally, it might teach you to throw stuff away maybe too quickly, but I would, I think that's a better problem to have than trying to make stuff work that isn't going to work because you're terrified you're not going to come up with another idea. The, the best rule, the the only rule of improv, really, the best thing that I ever learned um, was the um, was the yes and rule, which is that because comedy is about conflict and somebody starts a scene and says, I'm going to be this, and then uh, the, your comedy instinct tells you to get up and say, no, you're not. And um, what improv teaches you is to say, uh, when the, someone says, I'm going to be this, then you have to come on and say, yes, and you can, da, 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 da. Yeah. yes, and, and that's a, that's a really good uh, note, actually, but when you're writing, because um, even when, you, when you're writing, I guess the instinct is to is to be negative across something, but if you say yes, and, that's a, I find that's a really good way to, to take your, take, take your thoughts into new directions. So, yeah, I think if you can get involved in some improv, it wouldn't be, a bad thing to be involved with it for a bit. It might turn out you're very good at it. You might, and again, you might meet people who get what you do, what you're into, and and, I, and it just gets you out of the house and meeting people. Yeah. yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great, and I'm not a natural performer, but it got me over that. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. good. Because what's I suppose what's really happened over the last thirty years is uh, we've gone from in the world of sitcom where. The, uh, the the writer performer sitcom was a, was an occasional uh, small small but perfectly formed hit. For instance, uh, Forty Towers, the obvious one, the young ones, Ab Fab, uh, Ab Fab, and The Office. Um, but in the meantime, with stand up comedy uh, getting big, stand up comedy took a long time for that to look good on TV. But panel shows came along, and panel shows started to look good on TV very quickly, and so. I'm not sure that sitcoms were actually replaced necessarily by panel shows, but um, producers started to look for people who could be funny off the cuff. And so you'd start to see a lot of people uh, on panel shows 
Paul Merton being the obvious one, uh, David Bitchell coming through, Lee Mack, and loads and loads of people coming through panel shows. So now you've got writer perform many more sitcoms that are writer performer based. Mm. And um, if you look at uh, BBC One at the moment, the big BBC One sitcoms of the last five years, uh, Miranda, Not Going Out, Mrs Brown's Boys, and now Citizen Khan, they're all writer performer led. Yeah. So that's a big, big change, really, isn't it? In yeah, it is. And if, if you look, if you go back to Britain's best sitcom uh, in two thousand and one or two thousand and two, oh, yeah. they looked, it was um, they went through. I think it was won by Only Fools and Horses, but mm. it was Vicar of Spoilers, uh, Vicar of Dibley, and um, all those. Yes, Prime Minister and Blackadder, and if you look back, if you look at the to- list of the top twenty or thirty, I think it is Only Faulty Towers. And possibly Ab Fab that's in the top 30 that was written by a writer performer. Everything else was written by, uh, by writers, by people like, uh, Roy Clark or John Sullivan or Richard Curtis or Carla Lane or whoever. Yeah. So in one sense, it, it feels, and it, and actually the writers who are now writers in comedy and not performers are people like Graham Linehan. And even he's almost a performer because now he's on panel games yeah. and he seems to have, a, a a persona, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, which elevates him from being just the humble writer. Yeah. Um, so it has gone under undergone quite a big change, as you say, in the last sort of thirty years. So, what are the implications then? Do you think for uh, writers, people starting out, who uh, you know, they ju- you just want to write people who just want to have fun writing. Yeah, bad luck. Uh, it's it's all over for you, unfortunately. I think there are reasons to be to be cheerful, um, not least because the amount of comedy that is demanded by by TV and radio is as high as ever, if not higher. So there is plenty of work out there, as it were. Lots of it is being done by a fairly small number of people, but this is not this is not the end. Um, and what you can do is. Just bear that in mind as you write, and you've got a couple of uh, good suggestions, Dave. I see, um, which is the first of which is, uh, well, write write big characters, write larger than life. We've talked about characters, yeah. monsters, characters who uh, where, where you think uh, you could probably uh, imagine somebody who is already quite well known, and imagine putting them into a, a sitcom and that's even if you can't get your first choice uh then i'm sure there are several other people who could who could play that sort of part it's a good it, and also you can write big situations or you can write big ideas if you're a writer performer and you have a particular form of comedy then it does automatically lend itself to one or two situations i'm thinking for example Jack D's fantastic lead balloon was perfect Jack D thing. Mm. It probably would have been a bit harder for him to have done a much higher concept show with his comedy persona as it was then. He probably has much more freedom to do it now. So if you've spent 30 years honing an act on the live circuit, you're, you're slightly stuck with that, a version of that as a sitcom. Whereas if you're just a writer, just a writer, if you're a non-performing writer, you can set your sitcom in space or on a battleship or on a submarine or 600 years ago or in the year 3000 you can set it on a you know on, a, on an oil rig or in a betting shop and you can do whatever you like so in one sense the imaginary world is your oyster yeah so 
embrace that, I would say, rather than trying to write the sorts of things that writer-performers are starting to... So BBC Three have got Together, mm-hmm. which is a Johnny Sweet show, and it's about to get Josh, which is the Josh Widdicombe show. Yeah. They're both fairly low-concept shows um, about 20-somethings and their regular lives. Right. I would say as a writer, you're you're not quite wasting your time by trying to write that kind of show. But I would say I would make sure that you are doing something that the writer-performers aren't doing. Hmm. And it's worth getting to know writer-performers, writer obviously not the ones who are already on TV, but there's a lot of people coming through. Uh, go to Edinburgh, obviously, go and see them performing. And see the ones who aren't yet big and well-known and the ones that you like and think about some ideas for them and you know try and meet them and see if you can hook up with them because writer-performers are... Uh, always looking for other people to to work with them, other writers to work with them, not necessarily for their stand-up shows, but but for other ideas. And it would be easier, and I would say, it would be easier to hook up with a uh, a comedian of some sort if you're in Edinburgh. If you yourself are doing an Edinburgh show, if you look like a slightly weird obsessive fan, they might keep their distance from you. Mm. But if you've got a show on somewhere else that... That is that is fine. That is doing some good, interesting stuff, and they see it, then they'll see the sorts of stuff that you like to do. Mm-hmm. So, in one sense, I always argue that people should think about doing Edinburgh not just because it'll improve their comedy writing, but it'll it'll improve their comedy connections and contacts, so that you're part of that crowd, you're in the mix rather than on the edges trying to get involved. Even though, if you do take a show to Edinburgh, there's a 99% chance that you will be on the edge in every sense. You'll be, but you'll know, be on the a, edge with everybody else yeah, rather than even further. Four miles out of Edinburgh. That is true. Audience of three. But that is true. But in one that's sense, that's part of the fun of that's, Edinburgh. In one sense, you're. I think everybody who performs at Edinburgh uh, has a siege mentality to them, and you get to be part of it. You have a right to be part of it if you're performing, which you yeah. don't really get if you're just turning up to go and look at stuff and yeah. see who's who, and see who you could write for. So, I don't know. It's not right for everyone, but I think it's it's well worth considering. It's worth also honing your one-liner writing skills, and it's a, it's a hard world to get into, and there are very few people who do that. But if you can write one-liners for panel shows, uh, that's a very good way of getting into uh, the comedy business. And um, obviously, if you're working on panel shows, you're going to meet a lot of writer performers. One last point I'm just going to mention for this is uh, that um, it's worth considering writing for radio, and we'll be talking about writing for radio in our next podcast, and we'll have a special guest for that as well. Yes, so although there are radio, radio does suit writer-performers, and there are lots of writer-performer shows, it does seem that there is much greater scope for an encouragement of writers who aren't performers. But yeah, more of that next time. I mean, overall, you want to be thinking, how can I make the most of the the world as it is rather than as I'd like it to be. So part of me, personally, I'd love to go back to the era when writers wrote everything and performers performed things and it stayed like that and that would have suited me, but that's not things as they are. The, but writer-performers need writers in order to bulk out their shows and to, you know, I, I've been part of the Veranda's show, uh, Dave has written for uh, Not Going Out. There is work out there for writers because if you're the writer, the performer and the star then that's a lot of pressure on you, and so you will start uh, to build a team. And you can also see the attraction of these. It's a lot easier to get used to the new reality if you realise 
why what's happened has happened. It's because somebody who spent years honing a comedy persona that works in all sorts of situations has, has been tried and tested and therefore it's going to be appealing to a commissioner who now knows what they're getting. And so, and on top of that, these people often have great experience of working with live studio audiences. And I don't know if the decline of rep theatre has made it such that actually that's a lot harder of a skill to, to acquire outside of the comedy circuit. Mm. Well, again, the sort of sitcoms that we grew up with uh, were the, 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 the main actors and, and all the secondary characters. They were just These were just people who were spending their lives working in the theatre uh, around the country and they'd be doing, you know, they'd, they'd spend three weeks doing doing Hamlet in Chichester mm. and then they're off to Shrewsbury to do a brand new Harold Pinter play or something. So they, uh, uh, all the time they're performing in front of audiences and then uh, and, and they picked up all those skills. And so there aren't so many of those kind of staple sitcom character actors anymore. Yeah. But as you say, there are these people who've done hundreds, thousands of gigs. They've played... Uh, stag nights, they've played student fresher gigs, they've played old people's homes. And now some of them have played yeah. the O2. So yeah. you're going to see why that they're going to get to the front of the queue. Mm. And also, on top of that, if they are playing the O2, they're going to bring an audience with them. Mm. So they, and on top of that, they're going to be really good at plugging their show yeah. and championing it on the Graham Norton show. Mm. They'll be able to go on and. Just imagine yourself on Graham Norton plugging your show. How's sitting that going to go? Next to some uh, yes. A-list movie star. Yes, you're sitting between uh, Dwayne Johnson, <laughs> aka The Rock, and Zellweger. Yes, that's right. And then there's you with your sitcom. Yeah. So mm. you can understand why people are drawn towards uh, the writer performer. Mm. Um, this we'll probably discuss this in greater length when it becomes a thing. But there are plans afoot. The three big comedy companies, uh, Avalon, Hattrick, and Baby Cow, who are considering buying BBC Three. I don't know how it's going to work or if it's going to <laughs> I think they've considered it and I think BBC Three have uh, decided not to sell. Yeah. However, I think that they're, the three of them are, are too powerful to just go away and say, oh, okay, fair enough. Right. They've obviously, they've obviously done the figures and worked out that it's worth doing. But do you think maybe that that's a, a potential, a pot- potentially saviour of the narrative sitcom? Well, I don't, I mean, what's going to happen to BBC Three is anyone's guess. Um, but I think as long as production companies like Hattrick, Avalon, Baby Cow, Talkback, whoever, uh, Objective, as long as they're serious about narrative sitcom, I think it does have a healthy future. And controllers can see that, um, sitcoms are what people want to watch and that if they get it right, they've got a, you know, they've got a huge hit on their hands. The big Christmas highlight for BBC One is normally, the sitcom, mm-hmm. that the Christmas special of the sitcom, yeah. that's the thing that tends to get on the front page of the Radio Times. Yeah. So that that is still what people want at the moment, no. thankfully. So do you think this is just a blip, or do you think this is the future of comedy? I think it's just another twist in the tail, really. I, I don't think it'll go back to how it was, but also it won't probably stay like this forever, and we'll have to see. But it is interesting how the half-hour narrative has remained relatively unchanged throughout all of these changes. Mm-hmm. So the way it's written may have changed, the way it's performed may have changed, the non-audience, audience stuff, the mockumentary style 
it may have all changed, but actually the, the format itself still seems relatively robust. So hopefully mm. there is hope. Great, great. Hopefully there's hope. Yeah. Wow, what yeah. profound stuff. Yeah. <laughs> great characters, great stories. They, they still never go away. So um, that's, uh, that's that. That's Writer Performers. Next uh, show up, I'll say, we'll be talking about uh, radio. Um, reminder, please like us on Facebook, he said needily. Um, <laughs> ask us questions, leave a comment on uh, iTunes, uh, email, email sitcomgeeks at gmail.com if you've got any questions. Uh, buy our books. Um, James, your book My is... is writing that sitcom and my blog is sitcomgeek.blogspot.com. And, um, that's a, a very good, both both worth reading uh, all the time. Follow us on Twitter, it's at Sitcom Geek, that's James, at Cohen Dave, that's me. Thank you to Positive for giving us space to record the podcast. Thank you to the British Comedy Guide, and uh, we are, of course, at uh, www.comedy.co.uk slash podcast slash sitcom underscore geeks. And thank you to our producer, Katie Story. Thank you.